Today I'm continuing the sermon series that I began last week called The Cost of Discipleship. Although, as I said last week, I could very easily say this is just a continuation of the previous series, which was on worship, because it is so closely related to that. I say this because I believe many Christians find themselves unable to truly worship and therefore not have a satisfying relationship with God exactly because they have never been willing to pay the price, the required price, to be a true disciple and follower of Jesus. As we considered last week, many Christians do not understand that there is really no such thing as cheap grace, the thing so many Christians today seem to want, and that true Christian discipleship instead demands costly grace. Now this past week I had one friend from our congregation tell me that my sermon last Sunday about cheap grace and costly grace was too hard, perhaps even too harsh. I appreciated the comment. I can only say, as I did to this friend, that sometimes a preacher must be prophetic. What that means is that from time to time we must preach sermons that include hard truths, that we call ourselves to repentance to make sure that we do not begin to wander from the faith and therefore begin to become lost. And I believe it is very true that too many Christians today have wandered And they, unfortunately, many have become Christian in name only. So for that reason, we need to be called back from time to time. We need to be called to repentance, to be reminded to take our faith seriously, to not presume or take for granted the mercy and grace of God. By way of remembering the distinction that I made last week following Dietrich Bonhoeffer's wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, the difference between cheap grace and costly grace... Let me remind you, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. It is grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. It is a cheap and completely inadequate attempt to cover our sins. It's an attempt we create for ourselves. It requires no contrition and still less any real desire to be changed and delivered from sin. But following Jesus, again as I said last week, is more than just nodding your head or raising your hand or signing a card or repeating a prayer. Although all of those are things that someone can do when they come to Jesus. Following Jesus means abandoning trust in ourselves, surrendering everything that we are and everything we have to Him. That and nothing less than that is what it means to be a Christian. Now, such costly grace as sacrificing ourselves to Christ is costly exactly because it calls us to be obedient and to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. It is costly because it costs God his own son. You were bought with a price, and what costs God so much cannot be cheap for us. Despite that, many Christians and even many Christian pastors insist that grace is so all-sufficient that you need nothing else. There is nothing one has to do but speak the words to profess to having faith, and grace will cover everything. And to defend this position, they misquote and misinterpret Scripture, claiming that the Bible tells us that nothing is needed for salvation but grace, 
and that faith simply means mental assent to the Christian religion without the need to do anything. There's only one problem with that, while it sounds good, and that problem is that this is contrary to what Jesus teaches, it is contrary to what the Apostle Paul teaches, to what the Apostle John teaches, to what the Apostle James teaches, just to name a few. Jesus said to those who called Him Lord but refused to obey Him in caring for those who had need, Depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus said in John, If you love me, keep my commandments. Later in John, he said, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. He said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. The Apostle Paul, referring to those who claim to be followers of Jesus but still continue to live like everybody else, Paul said, These people have only a form of godliness but deny its power. And he tells us to have nothing to do with such people. John the Apostle, in the epistle of 1 John, writes, We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. James, the half-brother of Jesus and the head of the Jerusalem Council, wrote in the epistle of James, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. All of these scripture references and many more are clear in insisting that there are things that we will and must do if our faith is real and if we truly are a follower of Jesus. Please understand, it is not that we do things in order to be saved. Paul is very clear in Ephesians when he said, It is by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is a free gift of God. The question is, what is real faith? Last week we looked at the scripture in Romans 12 where the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is our true and proper worship. That means to be a true follower of Jesus, to attach ourselves to Him, not only with words, but by becoming an obedient disciple. This is not the shallow, comfortable ease of cheap grace, where we expect the benefits of salvation without being required to do anything or change anything in any way. It is instead the heavy demand of costly grace, in which we willingly become a living sacrifice in response to God's great love and mercy for us. Now, I want us now to look at a story from the Gospel of Luke that emphasizes this truth that being a disciple of Jesus means more than just mental or verbal assent, but rather means allowing nothing to separate us from the Lord we serve, that we are obedient. This is from Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 57. Hear now this which is the word of the Lord. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Him, of course, being Jesus. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. 
May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Here we have an account of three men in Luke who all said the right words. All three of them declared their faith in Jesus by saying they wanted to be his follower. They wanted to go with him. They wanted to be his companion. All three were just like the people who raised their hands while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, saying they want to be a Christian. But unfortunately, none of these three men ended up actually following Jesus. The first man that you see here in verse 57 wanted to be a disciple. Until, that is, Jesus pointed out that being his disciple meant giving up everything, not even having a place to live. We then hear nothing more about this man, suggesting that he decided that being with Jesus was too demanding, and so he went a different way. The second man, in verse 59 and 60, responds positively to Jesus' invitation to follow him, but he has one caveat. He needs to bury his father. Now, this actually suggests not that his father is dead, but that he's still alive, because the Jews bury their dead immediately. And if he was already dead, the Jew would have been at home, the man would have been at home preparing his father's funeral. When he said, let me bury my father, what he means is, let me stick around with my father until after he dies, then I will bury him and then follow you, Jesus. But Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. What he means by that is let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. If you are to be spiritually alive, you must claim that life now and come with me and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. But again, the man apparently said no, because we hear no more about him. And then finally, the third man says he will follow Jesus, but first he wants to go and say goodbye to his family. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable request, but Jesus sees it for what it is. An unwillingness to leave the past behind in order to move forward with Jesus. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever plowed. I actually have. And when you plow, you have to look ahead. If you look behind, you go all over the place and you cross over your previous furrows. If you're going to plow correctly and make a straight furrow, you have to always keep looking ahead. And Jesus uses that analogy as a way of saying that if you're going to follow him, you must look forward to what is coming, not look back. And in this case, that means desiring to keep part of your old life. It simply will not work. All three of these men said they wanted to be followers of Jesus. They raised their hand. They filled out the card. They prayed the sinner's prayer, in effect. But all three ended up having reasons why they actually would not do it, would not follow Jesus. They seemed to have faith, but they were unwilling to be obedient and actually follow. Similarly, we have the story well-known of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Jesus saw this young man trying to be righteous. He was asking the right questions. What must I do to gain eternal life? What must I do to please God? But Jesus, who sees into the hearts of men, knew what his real problem was. And that was that he was in love with his wealth and possessions. And when Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. 
And we're told that the young man, when he heard this, went away very sad because he had great wealth. He simply was not willing to leave his old life, and especially his wealth, behind to follow Jesus. In every one of these cases, the men said they were ready to follow Jesus, to do what he commanded, but when it came right down to it, when they had to choose to be obedient, each of them found something in their old lives that they were not willing to leave behind. Some reason they could not be obedient to Jesus' call. And so none of them became a disciple of the Lord. Because you see, and this is the point, faith without obedience is not really faith. It's nothing more than shallow words. Faith without obedience is not really faith. You compare these responses to the responses from the men who wanted to follow Jesus once he asked them to follow him. Particularly, for instance, when Jesus approached Peter and the Galilean fishermen and said to them, Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we're told in Matthew 4, At once they left their nets and followed him. No qualifications, no other thing you've got to get done, no reluctance to leave things behind. Immediate obedience without any effort to retain some part of their old lives. Come and follow me. And immediately they left their nets. Likewise, when Jesus approaches Matthew, the tax collector, and says, follow me, Matthew immediately got up, we're told. He left his collection booth behind and he followed Jesus. This is the difference between those who simply professed faith in Jesus, I want to follow you, but then we're not willing to be obedient to what it, we're not willing to do what it required, and those who were immediately obedient, those who became Jesus' close friends and the apostles, those on whom the church was built, who were willing to leave their old lives and their jobs and their homes behind to be with Jesus. Because again, faith without obedience is not really faith. But that does not mean that obedience, accepting the costly grace, is easy. Again, the friend who spoke to me about my hard sermon from last week told me further, it seemed like I was insisting on something that simply wasn't possible. That we're, we're merely human. And as I understood his concerns, he was saying that we Christians, being human, simply are not able to meet the kind of standards that we're talking about when we talk about costly grace. And it's perhaps unfair for us to expect this. Well, regarding the suggestion that human beings are not able to meet the demands of costly grace, are not really up to being fully obedient, that we can't achieve the high standards required to be a true disciple of Jesus, my friend was completely right. We cannot meet the standard of costly grace. We cannot become more holy or more righteous in the way God expects us to. Or at least, we cannot do it on our own. We are too broken and too weak to become on our own what we would need to be to follow costly grace, to be obedient to Jesus in the way we're called to. But just as in the previous sermon series, I talked about the fact that worship is a relationship that is initiated by God, that God takes the first step, 
and that we simply respond to Him, the same thing is true with real faith. God initiates the relationship. He takes the action. He seeks us out and calls to us as He has always done. And He gives us then the opportunity to respond in faith and obedience. Because remember, faith without obedience is not real faith. This was true in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. They did not go seeking God after the fall. God came looking for them and calling out for them. God initiated the contact after the first sin. In the same way God sent His own Son to live as one of us and to die in payment for our sins, not because we had repented and changed and deserved it and that we went looking for Him, because we were not able in our sin to even seek God out. As Paul makes clear in Romans 5, he says, at just the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And he continues to say, God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God took the initiative when we couldn't. He came to us and offered His grace. God initiates the relationship. He takes the first step, as He has always done, approaching us in love and then giving us the responsibility to respond with His help, which is why He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit that is in every believer in Jesus, that it is by the power of the Spirit we hear the voice of God and we are able to respond to Him. So many of us imagine that we take the first steps of faith. But the fact is that when we think we're taking the first step of faith, we then realize that God was there all the time. He had already stepped forward to us. He was waiting for us. He was reaching out to us, calling to us to come to Him. And we are only able to come to faith in Jesus Christ in obedience to God because He first approaches and makes it possible for us to be in relationship with Him. By ourselves, we cannot even respond in faith, much less live the life of obedience called for in costly grace. But we do not have to do it by ourselves, and that is the great good news. God has done it for us. We cannot climb up to Him. The chasm that separates our sinfulness from the holy and righteous God is far greater than we could ever bridge, that we could ever hope to cross. So instead, He came down to us. That is the nature of the incarnation of Jesus. And it is only because of the grace given by Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us that we are ever able to have true faith. Which means that we are able to respond in faith and obedience. Not to experience the cheap grace of simple mental or verbal assent to Jesus while still trying to live our old lives the same way we did before. But costly grace, the faith and obedience of costly grace is a gift to us if we will receive it from God. Because faith without obedience is not real faith and God gives us the gift of faith. But fortunately, praise God, it is not up to us to have faith or to be obedient. We only have to be willing to follow when God leads, when God enables us to have real faith, the true faith of costly grace. It is too hard for us alone, 
But Jesus came to us to make it possible, and the Holy Spirit enables us to receive, to hear the voice of God and to receive Him, and to grow in righteousness and holiness as we serve the Lord. If we will simply let God call us and respond. Thanks be to God. Amen.